Uh, today we are still in the best sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we have arrived at a new section starting in Matthew 5, 21. So turn to your Bible, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Earlier this century, seems like the century is flying by, does it? Anybody besides me? I remember Y2K, and I was like, what? And I did nothing to any of the computers, and they all worked. You remember Y2K? Okay, just saying. Earlier this century, a guy named Jesse Jacobs created what he called the Apology Hotline. Did you, have you ever heard of that? He created the Apology Hotline that made it possible for someone to go and apologize without actually talking to the person you wronged. Sissies? No, all right. People who were unable or unwilling, I think that's it, to unburden their conscience in person with someone could call the hotline and leave a message on an answering machine. Well, that wouldn't work, would it? Uh, Each week, 30 to 50 calls were logged on the apology hotline as people apologized for things from adultery to embezzlement and everything in between. And I I found a quote from Jesse Jacobs. Here it is. The hotline offers participants a chance to alleviate their guilt. I say, really? And to some degree, to own up to their misdeeds. The apology hotline may have seemed to offer some relief from guilt. I want to tell you something. What we're going to look at here today, Jesus gives us instruction. And Jesus instructs his disciples, I hope you're one of them, And he gives a different, and I believe, a better way. So today we begin a section of scripture that uh, lists, um, it's a section of comparative statements. In fact, some some scholars have called it the six antithesis. You know, it's this, and then, but wait a minute, it's this. And then there's another one. It's this statement, but wait a minute, it's this. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, You might think of it this way. In your Bible, you, you may have something like, you have heard it said. But I say to you, you see the difference, the contrast, and that's what we're going to look at today. I believe this section in Matthew chapter 5 is one of the most foundational passages on human relationships that we find in the Bible. Jesus begins with the prohibition against the ultimate relationship killer. I'm going to give it to you right now. You've seen the title of the sermon. The ultimate relationship killer is murder. No pun intended, okay? It really is. So Jesus is going to start with that, and then he supplies his own teaching. And his teaching goes far beyond the mere preserving of life itself to the actual preserving of human relationships. So in this section in the best sermon ever, Jesus describes how a righteous person conducts his or her relationships. And remember that this righteousness thing keeps coming up over and over again. And it's not our righteousness, it's all of God's righteousness and how he can work in us and how he can do a work in us and through us. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. You have heard, see there it is, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, did you catch it? You see that? But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. 
So if you are offering your guilt on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. God, as we focus today on our relationships, how we relate to each other, and the teaching of Jesus, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, our minds would be open. Lord, I pray that wherever we are today, some searching, some maybe have walked away from you, some are, are, are walking with you, some are striving to be more and more like you. What, whatever situation we're in today, I pray that we would realize the power and authority of your word. Not my words, but your word in the Bible. And that we would allow you to speak into our hearts and to our souls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you remember last uh, week, Jesus had just affirmed the unshakable authority of the law of Scripture, if you will. Do you remember that? He said, I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it, to take it to its completion, to its intended consequences. And so he has already done that, and now he begins to make his assertions or his teaching. And when he says, but I tell you, in, in the biblical language, he's using what we call the emphatic first person. So what you see when it says, but I tell you, is it takes that declaration and it places it on the highest level of authority. On the level, we might say, on the level of a prophet of God and the Messiah, who is prophet, priest, and king. He is the Lord of Scriptures. Now, we have to remember the original audience. Remember the, the first hearers of this, and they receive some of this a little different than we do today. And so when he's saying, when he's going right up here, that's different than what they're used to because Jesus here does not use the rabbinical principle that his words must be um, confirmed by another authority. Because that's what the rabbis would do, right? They would never say, but I tell you. They would say, but I agree with so-and-so. Or so-and-so says, and I concur. Okay, so that's very different. I mean, here, mind blown again. He just keeps doing it in this sermon. Jesus instead acts on his own authority and gives the scriptures their full meaning. Jesus, really, if we understand the culture of that day, he was actually confronting wrong interpretation. What do I mean by that? He was confronting the reasoning of the religious leaders. The reasoning of the religious leaders. I don't care what title you have. Lead pastor, elder, deacon, teacher, you fill in the blank. If my reasoning or someone else's reasoning gets in there and we concoct this thing, we might be able to write a great book. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, God has been consistent throughout history. He will challenge and show the contrast to that and confront it. So here they had this, this, these religious leaders and this reasoning, how they use Scripture. We should take note. All right, let's look at that first relationship killer. 
in your notes there. Number one is murder. Did you catch it in verse 21? Pretty straightforward. You have heard it said that to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Now let me say something here as we start. This is not Jesus going against the Ten Commandments or against Moses. It's Jesus going further. As we work through these six things over a period of time, I want you to see Jesus is not doing away with something, but he's going much further. He's going much deeper. It's life-altering teaching that he's given. Don't we prefer that? Don't we prefer uh, life change and life-altering teaching than just boring, mm, okay, social gospel that's out there? Just, just, just be nice. What, what, how does that help, all right? So here he's going further. The leaders were concerned, if you remember their rules and regulations, with superficial stuff. Oh, I see what you're doing. I saw what you did. Oh, you took too many steps on the Sabbath. I saw that. That's what they're concerned with because they never do it, okay? But Jesus is not concerned with that. He goes much deeper to the heart of the matter. So we see it starts off with the phrase, you have heard that it was said. Here's the difficulty of those days. The people had not even studied the law of Moses for themselves. Did you catch that? I'm going to say something bold to you this morning. What good does it do for you to come in here and even be on time perhaps and sit in our worship service? And think, for some reason, think that some guy could stand up here and bloviate for 40 minutes and you get all that you need. No, the scripture is clear. If you're a follower of Christ, it's on you to study the scriptures. And that should be confirmed when we gather together, when we praise together, when we pray together, when we proclaim the word together. It should be that way. It's the same with worship. If you think this little bit of time here is going to solve it all, no. It should be happening in your life all through the week. Do you understand that? Do you agree with that? you see how that works? Now, as you study, don't send me too many questions. <laughs> There's so many hours in the day, okay? But questions are good, aren't they? They're better than statements because we're actually studying and questioning these things. Okay, so, so all that these people had was the teaching on the law. You know these groups of people. You've heard of them before. The scribes and the Pharisees. So he says, you've heard that it was said. It's not like, he's not saying, great, you've been coming to church. It's like, you don't even know. You haven't even studied it yourself. You're taking their word for it. But here is a unique thing that he says, because other times we'll see, you have heard that it's said, but here he says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors. And that speaks to me. Yes, he's being historical, but I think he's also reminding us that just because it's been told to the ancestors, does it mean it's truth? Hello? Just because something is old doesn't mean it's truth. Now, old things can be truth, right? I mean, look at the scripture, how old some of our scripture is. But something that's old, that's not necessarily truth, you know what we call that sometimes? A tradition or a preference. And we must be careful of that. Because there's been things that have been told to people a long time ago that we know don't line up with scripture. 
And so he throws that little zinger in. But obviously he goes and, and quotes and says, do not murder. So murder is the ultimate relationship killer. And the word used here is actually, maybe some of you, uh, the King James Version would say, thou shalt not kill. Wrong. Not what the word is. The word actually talks about murder. It's to kill a person unjustly. So we would understand that, okay? It's not talking about slaying an animal for food. So you vegetarians, don't come get me, okay? That's not what it's talking about. That's not what the biblical word is. It, it doesn't, it's not the word that's used in Scripture and in the language back then for going to war because there's killing that happens in war, right? I mean, have you read the Bible? There's all kinds of stuff that happen, wars and conflicts. It's not that word either. Those are different biblical words. It is actually the word for murder, which is killing someone Unjust. I think we know what that is, right? I know you guys watch those shows, Dateline and 2020 and all those other ones, okay? But look at what he goes on to say. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. His hearers knew this, mainly from the book of Deuteronomy. They knew that what the scripture says, their scripture said this, the murderer was what? To be put to death. We call it blood for blood. And even and, and some people have told me, well, that doesn't apply because, you know, things happened after that. Listen, let me read to you from Deuteronomy that God gave to Noah after the flood. This is not creation. This is not Adam and Eve. It's not Cain and Abel. Here is the word to Noah after the flood. So much later, and it's simply this, Genesis 9, 6. I don't know how to explain it away. It says, whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his own image. I'll let you wrestle with that and figure out what all that means. But it's pretty clear to me. But then Jesus goes deeper. In the first part of verse 22, he doesn't stop with, thou shalt not murder, don't murder. He moves on and he gives an amendment to murder, and it's anger. And in fact, you're going to see anger. If you're astute and you're with it, you're going to see anger throughout this passage. So Jesus, again, shows his authority. He does not rely on the previous words, on the words of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look what he says. But I tell you, emphatic, remember, first person, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Wait a minute. You just said the murderer is subject to judgment. Now you're going to say, if I'm angry, I'm subject to judgment? Same word. Wow. He's teaching his hearers the true understanding of the law. Remember, he came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it, the moral law. They had been taught that anything short of murder might be allowed. Jesus corrects this and makes it clear that it is not only those who commit the act of murder who are in danger of judgment, but even those who have a murderous heart or a murderous intent in the heart are danger, in danger of the judgment. So he says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry, well, that's an interesting word. The root word for uh, anger there, or angry, is uh, orge. It means to be provoked and enraged. Are you getting the picture what kind of anger we're talking about? To provoke, be provoked and enraged, to become exasperated. 
Now, fathers and grandfathers in here will remember later on, Paul talks about, gives the command, do not, and the correct, uh, correct uh, translation is, do not exasperate your children. You remember that phrase? Yeah, we're getting the same idea there, okay? It's, it's the kind of anger that one lets simmer that won't die. It's not I got upset because the Broncos did something foolishly and lost the game. Or because it's not the anger because someone almost hit me. That's never happened to you, have it, on the freeway? They almost hit me, and you're like, come on! I mean, and my family would tell you, as we're driving and someone looks like they're coming out, I, I'm, I'm not yelling, but loudly saying, don't do it, don't do it. Am I slowing down? No, I'm just plowing on through, but don't do it, okay? And then if they do it, come on! It's not that kind of anger. It's an anger where you simmer, and it simmer, and it won't die away. It is long-lived. Anger is a lot like cancer. If you let it grow, it begins to consume you. It begins to feed on that which is good. That's as far as I'm going to go with that analogy because I am not a medical person, but I, I think it fits. I think it works there, okay? This anger, if you let it grow, it is going to keep simmering. It's going to be long-lived. It's going to feed on you. Jesus is not talking about righteous anger here. I've heard that so many times, and I just want to say, stop it. It's not what we're talking about here. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about unrighteous, sinful anger that is long-lived. And I'm going to ask you a tough question this morning. Usually I wait towards the end, but I'm not waiting today. Here we go. You ready? Are you in danger of judgment, Christian, because of your anger? We're going to raise our hand. No, we're not going to raise our hand. <laughs> Calm down. I want you to think about that, though. It's obvious, as Jesus takes this further, that there is danger here. Pay attention to what our Savior is teaching, and let me follow what he is teaching. Are you in danger of judgment because of your anger? Let me say it this way, because some of y'all are still smiling, and you're like, nah, I'm good. How about this one? Are there things you won't let die? Gotcha. Got all of us in here just about, huh? Are there things in our life that we just won't let die? And the pinnacle verse, I think, is found in Ephesians 4, 26. You'll know it. Be angry. What? What? The Bible says to be angry? Mm. Be angry and yet do not sin. We could say simmer there because the rest of the verse says, do not let the, you know what, sun go down on your anger. Okay? James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. My dearly loved brothers, that's Christians, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You see, that's what it's all about what it's all about. So I think you would agree with me, just like uh, murder is the ultimate relationship killer, anger is a very prolific relationship killer. Now I know people, I stand up and talk in front of people all the time, and I know there's a number of people in here that God has revealed a face or a name to you already, and you have not let it go. 
you still have anger on that. The unrighteous, not the righteous kind of anger. You have not practiced what Scripture says. You have not uh, dealt with it before the sun goes down. You have not been slow to it. So we know anger is a prolific relationship killer. Oh, but it gets better. Let's look at the last part of verse 22. Look at the last part of verse 22. Jesus is on a roll, isn't he? And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. Now, the word actually used here, you, you may have a, you probably have a little footnote in your Bible. The word is raka, R-A-C-A. That's the word. It's, it, that's the actual word that's intended here. It's not Greek or Hebrew. It's an Aramaic term of abuse. I think the closest word we might have to it, and of course translators aren't going to use it, but it would be brainless idiot. <laughs> Hopefully you haven't been called that. The Greek word that's used is fool, in my translation, maybe in yours. Okay, do you see that? And when they use this word, in ex- this brainless idiot word, in extreme earnest, it took a person that they were saying it to, and it demoted them. Have you ever seen with words somebody just demoted? Just, oh, man. So when that was used, and by the way, there was a group that used this quite a bit, scribes and Pharisees. It demoted the person basically to the level of nothing. Raka. Not a cuss word, but it brought him down to virtually nothing. And this word, it appears, and I think it's true even today, this idea, it comes from pride. One commentator, Barclay, says this. It is almost an untranslatable word because it describes also a tone of voice. That's why I was trying to spice it up more than anything else. Its whole accent is the accent of contempt. It is the word of one who despises another one with arrogant contempt. I'm convicted by that. I don't know about you. You you probably know I have a political bent. You probably know I'm pro-life. You probably know I'm pretty conservative. But with people I don't agree with, am I to the point where I have this, I despise them? Why? Why should I despise them? As upset as I get, I shouldn't. Especially if they're a lost person, right? They're not saved. So we must be careful with that. I, I don't want to have this arrogant, prideful contempt on that person. You know, we use the word stupid in other words, but raka, brainless idiot. In fact, such an insult to the fellow believer in the Jewish system in those days would warrant, you wonder why Jesus said that, because it warns them having to go before the Sanhedrin. What's that? The Supreme Council of Judaism. It's a big deal. And then Jesus goes further, one of my least favorite verses in the Bible, when he says, if you say moron. Now, what's my last name? Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? I dealt with that for a number of, until ninth grade. I took care of being called moron. I won't tell you what I did. It wasn't murder, but it was close to it. And I won. 
and they quit calling me that. Kids, I'm not advising that's the way to handle things, but, you know, so, wow. Words, right? This is about verbal views here. But he, he goes on to say, if you say more, that's a translation of fool. When we use that today, you know, kids might just be, actually, it's not a big word used that much anymore. But it usually meant we're acting like, well, you're of low IQ. No, that's not what it meant then. It meant someone of, you were calling someone of low moral condition. Hmm. You see how tough it was? And he tacked it on. Do you see it? It says, you'll be su- subject to hellfire. It's very interesting. If you use that word and you mean that and harbor it in your heart, Jesus is saying, you're subject to hellfire. The word there is Gehenna. That word, you've heard of it perhaps before. Maybe again, a footnote in your Bible. It was derived from the word Hinnom. If you've been to Israel, you might know about that. The Hinnom is, was a, a valley just southwest. It's just southwest of Jerusalem. And back then, they used it as a city dump. Okay? Now we have these cool places you drive up and pay money. And you wait and you go in and it's this facility and it's concrete. And you dump. Have you anybody ever been to those things? It's cool. And you dump the stuff in and the big front end loader comes and moves it away. Some of you have not experienced that yet, have you? It's way better than a dump. It's way better than a dump. But that's what they had then, this place, and it was the dump. And it was a nasty place. It's where they put the trash. And here's the thing about it. When, when they knew what hellfire, Gehenna, they knew what that meant from the Valley of Hinnom. It continually burned. There was fire, smoke, and stench, and it never, ever ceased. Now let's look at that again. And whoever says his brother a fool will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says you mourn will be subject to hellfire. That is what Jesus is talking about. Mind blown to those folks right now. Wow. You see, that place became identified in their minds with all that was vile and filthy. If you use that word, people knew what you're talking about. It's nasty, filthy, defiled. It was a place where useless and evil things were destroyed. And ultimately, it became, for them, a synonym of hell. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And so Jesus is clear here. Put those two phrases together and see. Verbal abuse is, in fact, a relationship killer. But he added something to that. Did you see what Jesus added? So if you're in a relationship today, maybe you're dating, maybe you're married, Maybe you've been married a long time. Maybe you have a parent, a child, whatever. If you're in any kind of relationship, you must be careful with verbal abuse. And that doesn't mean yelling and screaming and saying someone's a brainless idiot. It takes a lot of different forms, does it not? Have you ever been hurt by words? It's subject to judgment. Period. We need to be careful. As disciples, listen, let me encourage you. As, as I try to do better, you should try to do better. We cannot be belittling others. We can't make people feel worthless, even if their viewpoint is stupid beyond belief. Even if it doesn't jive with any single word in Scripture, we must be careful. I don't want to make them feel worthless, and we should not slander or make false executions on and on and on. Let us really be people who examine our verbal volleys. Be careful. Verbal abuse. And then we move to verses 23 and 24. I've entitled this one, Lack of Reconciliation. Jesus gives us 
a remarkable picture here. Maybe close your eyes or let me read it or just get your imagination going and get this picture. It's amazing. And it fits right on with this anger and all this stuff that's going on. So if you are offering your gift to the, at, on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Just leave it. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now we've read that many times, have we not? And we think, that's easy. I mean, we don't even put gifts on the altar, do we? We got boxes. Or we got what, what a bunch of you do. What is that you do? You, you do this electronic thing, right? Okay, but let's look at what, what he was saying to the hearers here. Picture it. The worshiper has entered the temple. The great Jerusalem temple. What they called the temple of Herod. Do you remember that? It was going to last for a little bit longer. Until AD 70, okay? So it's there. And they have entered and they bring their gift, their sacrifice, if you will. Aren't you glad we don't have to sacrifice in that way anymore? Right? You don't have to take your goat and, or your lamb and do that, okay? So here, here comes the worshiper into the great temple and has a sacrifice. Now, this guy has passed through the court of the Gentiles already. He's passed through the court of women. Look in the maps in the back of your Bible. You'll see this. He's passed to, through the court of men. And he has arrived at the point. All that stuff. He's arrived at the point where now he's in front of the court of the priests. Into which only the priests could pass. So this worshiper is standing at the threshold of the court of the priests. The hands are on the sacrifice, the offering. And suddenly, one of those stray thoughts goes through his mind. Do you ever get stray thoughts? Do you ever think that God may give you that zinger? And so there he is. Uh-oh. Oh, so-and-so. We got an issue. We got a problem. So he's standing there. And he, he's got this thought, I have wronged my brother. And so what does he have to do? He has to turn and retreat. He has to go back to the court of men, court of women. You know, see, on and on and on. He has to go back. He first must go, according to Jesus' teach, teaching, and make things right with his brother. We call that reconciliation. Jesus' point is clear here. He considers, I want you to hear this this morning, church. Jesus considers it far more important to be reconciled with the brother or sister than to perform religious duty or even fulfill the external duties of worship. Jesus would find it far more important for you to not be here today in this service and be reconciling with a brother somewhere that you have wronged. Wow. But I want you to note something. We, we take our culture and shove it in here. That wouldn't be too bad to do, right? You know, I'll just go get in the car and run, okay? But picture back then. This interruption that Jesus is calling for was significant because Jesus' hearers would have to abandon their gift at the altar. If you'll remember, this is the Jerusalem temple. They didn't all live right around the corner. And what, it, what some of those hearers heard was that I will have to travel for days, say, back to Galilee, and seek this reconciliation as long as it takes. And then I will return to Judea, 
to Jerusalem, to the temple, and complete the sacrifice. Do you see the picture that Jesus is giving them? This is a significant interruption to their worship, to their gift-giving. Such is the priority of reconciliation. We don't get it today in 2022 in America. But if we'll put ourselves into their shoes, we get it. It is a great interruption. It takes great effort, maybe great time, and it is worth it because we can come back and give our gift. And I want you to see that. As disciples, we must attempt at the earliest opportunity to reconcile with someone who has something against us. Earliest opportunity, church. Even if it interrupts important things, such as what we're doing right now. I have a fear as a pastor. It's that some today have resisted reconciliation many times, even for many, many years. Oh, but Lamar, you just don't know. I don't need to know. The scripture is clear. Look at the picture there. And those who have resisted reconciliation for many times, even many years, it's sad to me, and it is definitely, a lack of reconciliation is definitely a relationship killer. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks boldly. If you remember, as you get through the book of Acts, you're getting farther towards the end. He's in front of Felix. You remember that? It's a big deal. And Paul is having to give a defense, okay? I don't think any of you had to go to the Supreme Court today or this week or had to go to the president or whatever. But here, he, Paul's given a defense before Felix. Remember, they're occupied. Before the occupier. And this is what he says, Acts 24, 16. I always do my best to have a clear conscience toward God and men. That's one of the things that Paul says. Now, I read between the lines and I see that. How in the world can he have a clear con conscience? reconciliation. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. Jot this down. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Did you hear that? Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, in other words, don't be a doormat, but also for the interests of others. A couple things there. Don't be a doormat. Don't think reconciliation means I'll let anyone and everyone walk all over me. That's not what it means. You've got to look after your own interests. But also you look at other people's interests in such a way that I put on the glasses of Jesus and I go, you're more important than I am. You're more important than I am. You're more important than I am. I need to be reconciled with you. It has been said, and our mathematicians will love this. Some of y'all looked up. I saw you. your heads went up. You're like, hey. The shortest distance between two points is a, say it louder. Okay, I wasn't sure, but I, I wrote it down. You know, I stole it from somebody. Okay, it is, right? But Jesus here gives them a different picture. Here we see in Jesus' teaching that the shortest distance is not always between, between two points. It's not always a straight line. Sometimes the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line spiritually. Look at this guy. He had wandered, who knows, came down from Galilee all around and all of a sudden, whoop, all the way back. Mm, you see, that, that's wandering around. That's not a straight line at all. I want you to think about that. 
It has been said. See what I did there? I, see what I did there? It has been said. Not by Jesus, but I read this, that reconciliation is the cure to anger. Wow. So I have an assignment for you this week, and it's called reconciliation. God has laid it on my heart. There are people in this room watching online right now that you have some reconciliation to do. But, but you don't know. No. It's not about what them, they. It's about you. And you have wronged, even though you think you're in the right, you have wronged your brother. Isn't it funny how churches continue to do this? Have you noticed? I'm not rehashing the past. However, I'm pointing out that reconciliation takes care of these things. All right? Good thing we're not done yet, because I'd hate to end that way. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. We've seen the lack of reconciliation. Finally, as we close, we see the lack of agreement. Look at it. Reach a settlement quickly, verse 25, with your adversary. Now we're talking about a different person. With your adversary, well, it could be a believer, while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, or truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, you will never get out of there until you paid the last penny. This was written before inflation. <laughs> Pennies do not exist much anymore, do they? I was getting lunch some the other day. I said, you can keep the pennies. And the, the girl looked up at me and said, we don't want them. <laughs> I mean, is that the world we're in, all right? You know. You get a big jar of pennies, and what can you buy? I, mean, I don't know. A sandwich, maybe? Did you catch this here? Jesus is talking about urgency. You see, the urgency of reconciliation is expressed here. Jesus illustrates it, I believe. He tells us, in a nutshell, Jesus tells us, Stop, sort out trouble immediately before it piles up into more serious trouble for the future. Deal with it before you're getting ready to walk into the courtroom and have others give the verdict for this disagreement that you have. Take care of it at the earliest moment. Why? Just so you can say you're a good person? No, because logically it makes sense. Jesus, may, Jesus always makes sense. So you don't build. It's not the snowball rolling down the hill. It's not getting bigger and bigger. We should deal with that. The picture he gives here is of two opponents on their way to the courthouse. And Jesus tells us if we don't come to an agreement, somebody else will take care of it. We would say the law will take its course. And the reference here, it's kind of interesting, going from judge to officer to prison. Did you see how that went? pictures the complications involved in not settling the dispute out of court. And as your pastor, I would say practically it's also cheaper. <laughs> last penny. I don't want to have to get to the last penny, do you? Or the last dollar. So lack of agreement is a relationship killer. And I want to ask you a question today. Here's another hard question. Is your lack of agreement with someone imprisoning you? No, you're not in debtor's jail having to pay the last penny. But just picture that, okay? Metaphorically, are you imprisoned by your lack of agreement with someone? 
And it's like it started a nice big uh, federal prison luxury cell. And it's just getting smaller as the years go on or as the months go on or the weeks go on. It's getting smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden, man, you're in a four-by-four cell. And you're like this because not dealing with that lack of agreement is just getting worse and worse and worse. Remember we read Ephesians 4.26? Just talked about that. That we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. Paul doesn't stop there. He concludes that thought in verse 27, Ephesians 4.27, when he says, don't let the devil, don't give the devil, excuse me, an opportunity. I fear lack of agreement does just that. It allows the devil to come in and have an opportunity to mess with us. No, the devil can't take away your salvation or my salvation. Okay? I don't believe he can possess us, but he sure can affect us. Amen? He sure, and this lack of agreement just gives him opportunity. Chip away at me. Make me turn to the left or the right instead of going down the straight and narrow. Yes, he does it all the time. So as we close today, perhaps you're sensing something in your life. Can I, can I ask you this? Are you in a period of your life where maybe you're sensing some spiritual dryness or maybe a little spiritual emptiness in your life? You're praying, you're trying to be as close to God as you can, you're trying to be as good as possible, but somehow it just does not seem to be working in your life. You, you know you're a Christian, you know Jesus has saved you, you, you know even the Holy Spirit is living and dwelling in you, but it's just dry or empty, what could be going on why is it that way I would say today would you just take time this week to look at these relationship killers and see if one of them are the culprit now I hope murder is not the culprit okay but any of these others dealing with anger and how and reconciliation okay look at those see if they're the culprit but I got another question for you what if you're sitting here today or listening today and you're not a Christian? The Bible's clear how someone is a Christian. And the Bible's clear if you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. Doesn't matter what church you go to. Doesn't matter what family you came from. Doesn't matter what your, uh, your thoughts are. It doesn't matter where you work or who your mama was. None of that matters. What if you're not really a Christian? What if you do not know personally in relationship Christ Jesus as your Savior? I think we can see from this passage there's some reconciliation that needs to take place. You need to be reconciled with God. How can I say that? Because the Bible says that. The Bible says your sin has separated you from God. Now, we don't have to talk about sin, do we? We know what that is. Anybody have kids or grandkids? You know what that is. You don't have to teach them. We know what sin is, doing the wrong things. Or not doing the things we know are right and we're not doing them. Okay, so sin is the problem. And God is holy and cannot have anything to do with sin. He's holy, he's pure, and so there's this great separation. There needs to be reconciliation. And praise God, he had a rescue plan for humans. He sent his one and only, Scripture says he sent his one and only son, Jesus, 
who died on a cross so that they might not perish but have eternal life. God showed his love towards us, the Bible says, and even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. So I think the urgency of reconciliation applies to those of you who are not yet Christians. The Bible even stresses the urgency of being saved today. If I had a dollar for everyone who told me, I'm not ready to be a Christian yet. Have you ever heard that? I'm not ready to be a Christian yet. The Bible has a great urgency. You ought to be a Christian today. You ought to turn from your sin, repent, renounce that, and run to Jesus for forgiveness and to save you and to be Lord, boss, master over your life. The scripture is clear. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. I was talking with my brother-in-law last night, yes, at an outdoor wedding. It was a little hot. He had just lost his nephew just very recently to an accident. And we agreed. Scripture was clear. You're not guaranteed. Listen, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 6.2, for God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. You get in the context? The verse goes on and says, indeed, the right time is now. And we know the phrase, today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. What are you waiting for? James 4. 14 says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. Have you ever noticed your life took a turn? You're like, I had no idea last week that it was going to be like this this week. And the scripture goes on to say, for you're like smoke that appears for a little while, then it vanishes. That's what the Bible says about our life. We can't wait. Don't wait. Be reconciled to God. That's, more, that's the most important relationship that you can have. And if you are reconciled to God, if you know that you know that God has saved you and he is indwelling you and leading you, deal with these things here. I'm not so worried about murder. A little bit worried about angry. A little bit worried about verbal abuse. I'm very worried about lack of reconciliation and agreement and what God is saying to us today. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together today as we look at your words. Jesus, thank you for the best sermon ever. Thank you for fulfilling everything. Thank you for taking it deeper to where it needs to be. And God, I pray that we are convicted today. God, I pray that everyone in this room would allow you to do surgery on their heart right now would allow you right now in these next quiet moments to do business with you. God, I ask that you would reveal stuff to us today. And God, I pray for those who are not yet in relationship with you, that they would run to you today and be saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.